You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia. My name's Breach Burke, and I'm your host for this second episode, in which we are going to look at the um, Akkadian slash Sumerian slash Babylonian goddesses, um, Inanna and uh, Ishtar. Inanna and Ishtar are actually uh, two variations of the same deity, uh, just with different uh, names in two different areas. And uh, and Arishkagal, who is the sister of Inanna, the older sister, um, who is uh, queen of the underworld. Now, um, <clears throat> this story is very interesting. It's, it's a very, very old story from the Near East. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, a story that probably... Um, we're talking probably like you know the third millennium BCE is when these uh, when these stories were uh, written and where they come from and uh, these this, this particular pair or this the story connected with the two of them is probably one of the more famous uh, stories of the descent into the underworld um, and they they sort of demonstrate the very complex nature of these 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 sort of ancient goddesses, especially the ancient Babylonian, Sumerian, uh, Akkadian, Thracian, uh, the, the god you know the goddesses of this era, and and even slightly later than that, even you even see this in some of the Greco-Roman uh, goddesses as well. Um, you have this this rather complicated uh, feminine imagery that is not that, that does not very neatly fit into. Uh, a sort of ethical way of, or, or, what, or what we tend to think of as a very, um, you know, we, we kind of have, we have kind of have a thing about, um, about women. I think I've said the sort of the virgin whore kind of a thing. You have the woman who is chaste, submissive, obedient, and then you have the woman who is, you know, assumed to be the complete opposite. And a lot of this, of course, centers around sexuality and sexual behavior. Um, <clears throat> now, interestingly, uh, this this particular you know, this particular story, um, Inanna is a queen of heaven. Okay, she is a goddess of love, uh, as Enishtar, uh, depending on uh, which version you're reading. But she is Inanna is considered to be a Sumerian goddess. Uh, Ishtar is the Akkadian name. And I I don't think and but at the same time that she is a goddess of love, she's also a goddess of war, and her role um, in a lot of uh, myths, particularly the myth of Gilgamesh. Uh, she tends to be very cruel and very vengeful if she doesn't get her way. Uh, Gilgamesh makes the comment that uh, when she tries to seduce him, he says, "Look, look what happened to everybody else you ever slept with. You know, no, no good ever comes out of her lovers. They don't, they don't fare well. Uh, they end up um, dying in horrible ways." And of course, this makes her angry, uh, and she tries to uh, get back at Gilgamesh by sending uh, the Bull of Heaven to attack him. But uh, his friend Enkidu ends up, uh, Enkidu, ends up killing the Bull of Heaven. And that's that's another that's another part of the story, and there's another symbolism to that, which I'll get to uh, in a little bit. But I think where I would like to start here is just to talk about these two particular goddesses. Um, now, for a little context, um, this particular period of time, uh, when you have kind of this um, this area of ancient uh, Mesopotamia, okay, uh, what we think of as um, being uh, more in the area. Uh, of modern Turkey and points east. Uh, we have this, um, and this of course is the origins of, of a lot of our uh, Western, not only our Western mythologies, 
but our Western, um, some of our Western religious beliefs uh, come out of this particular area, not necessarily out of this particular set of practices, but they, they were quite influential for a long time. And, you know, you, and you have um, a society where women were probably a little bit more equal to men than they, than we tend to think of um, in, in kind of a patriarchal setup. Um, you do have um, uh, Satesius, his history of Persia. He particularly mentions um, a Babylonian queen called, uh, the, the Greek name is uh, Semiramis, who is, you know, she, her husband, she becomes queen um, when she's married to a uh, king in Nineveh. Um, and he, when he dies, um, her son is too young. She's more or less the, um, uh, you know, he's too young to be, he, he's the successor to the throne, but he's too young to be king. So she ends up taking over and ruling. And uh, she has, she does great feats of war. Supposedly she builds the great hanging, ba uh, hanging gardens of Babylon that were one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. And she was also a brilliant military strategist. This is actually why she was married to the king to begin with. So she was, uh, you know, so she was a very powerful woman. Uh, but Stesius refers to her and other powerful Babylonian women as um, having, you know, bring, having male warriors brought to them for sex and then killing them afterwards. Um, so you have this kind of, um, you know, this this reputation of the powerful woman. And we don't know, by the way, whether this is true, because Stesius, um, like a lot of these Greek narratives of um, of the Near East, have to be sort of taken with a grain of salt. We don't actually know. We don't actually have all the details in a lot of those. Um, so, okay. So let me start by talking a little bit about Inanna. Uh, again, she's ancient Sumerian goddess of love, sensuality, fertility, procreation, and war. Um, and she becomes identified with Ishtar. She's also identified with the Phoenician Astarte and the Greek Aphrodite. And also um, seen as the star of morning and evening, uh, Venus, and identified with that goddess. It's also worth noting that the morning and evening star, particularly the morning star, is associated with Lucifer. Okay, and the the whole Venus Lucifer uh, connection is is an interesting one, and probably one that I would actually like to take another whole separate episode to address. I don't really want to get into that here, but there's a lot of misconceptions about Lucifer and the name Lucifer as light bringer, um, and and it's interesting how that um, how the negative connotations of that get get caught up in these. Um, women who are later regarded as demons. Um, and again, it's worth remembering that the word demon, as it would have been used uh, in any particular form in this particular, you know, from this particular era, uh, it comes from the root word daemon, which has to do with more of an, an intermediary spirit, uh, a spirit that mediates between the world of the gods and the world of humans. So, um, so you have to be very, very careful when you see the word demon as referring to an ancient goddess. It's, it, I mean, you, you could be referring to later, um, particularly Christianized ideas of um, these ancient uh, pagan deities who were then, you know, assumed to be demons because they were not Christian in nature. But um, nonetheless, there's this, so, you, so whenever you see that term demon, it's, it's applied to um, sometimes to Inanna or to Ishtar or to, to Lilith or to some of these other, other figures that are very similar. Um, now, as far as depictions of Inanna, there's one that's, that's somewhat um, controversial. It's called the Bernie Relief, and you can, this is in the British Museum, I believe, also known as Queen of the Night. Um, I will have an image of this on my YouTube version of this. I'll, I'll post an image of this particular um, relief. 
but it shows a woman and she has next to her she has sort of a, a kind of a rush or you know that's that's got a loop at the top almost like an egyptian ankh and that is considered to be the symbol of inanna okay uh, which is why you know that why she's often identified as being the one in this relief the part about this relief that it, it makes it questionable is the fact that the um the woman goddess portrayed in this relief has the feet of a bird and uh, bird feet are generally the, the whole idea of a bird or being bird-like is definitely associated with the underworld um this is this is something uh that you see um you, you as you as you read through if you read the story of anana's descent to the underworld the underworld is talked about as a place where People are like birds or have birds feather, bird feathers. They eat dust. I mean, it's, it's considered to be a very dusty place and that people, you know, sprout feathers like birds. Um, so the idea of having bird's feet or a bird's, you know, bird's talons uh, is something, you know, certainly associated with death in the underworld. Um, there's, there's a whole um, history of the idea of the, the idea of bird as coming from you know, the root word for anima, uh, which, which uh, it comes from the word for wind. Um, has to do with the the flight uh, of the soul, and not you know, and in the Egyptian, in the Greek, and and in all the near near Eastern, you do see sort of these uh, either bird or flying references to um, to the the soul of the dead. So that's why there is some um, idea that that in, uh, relief may actually be an image of Anana's sister Arishkagal. Um but we'll talk more about that. In a little bit. I mean, it, it seems Arishkagal actually seems like a much better candidate, um, but uh, that's you know, but that's that's a you know that that's not a debate I'm going to solve here. But it's but it's interesting to note with the the symbolism that that makes both of those uh, female goddesses candidates. Okay, um, okay. Now I'm reading this. I've taken a bit just a bit from the ancient history encyclopedia, just to sort of have a summary um, of her attributes and so forth. Um, so this is by Joshua Mark. And this was published on um, in October 2010 online. Uh, he says, in some myths, she's the daughter of Enki, the god of wisdom, fresh water, magic, and a number of other elements and aspects of life. While in others, she appears as the daughter of Nana, the god of the moon and wisdom, also known as Sin in the uh, uh, Akkadian version. As the daughter of Nana, she was the twin sister of the sun god Utu or Shamash. Her power and provocation is almost always a defining characteristic in any of the tales told about her. Okay, so um, Mark tends to note that what he says here is that um, Anana was probably identified with Ishtar and rose in prominence from a local vegetative deity of the Sumerian people to the queen of heaven and the most popular goddess in all of Mesopotamia. Historian uh, Gwendoly Lake writes, Anana was the foremost Sumerian goddess, patron deity of Uruk. Her name was written with a sign that represents a reed stalk tied into a loop at the top. And that's the image I was referring to. This appears in the very earliest written text from the mid-fourth millennium BC. She's also mentioned in all the early god lists among the four main deities, along with Anu, Enki, and Enlil. In the royal inscriptions of the early dynastic period, Anana is often invoked as a special protectress of kings. Sargon of Akkad claims her support in battle and politics. It appears that during the third millennium that the goddess acquired martial aspects that may derive from a syncretism with the Semitic deity Ishtar. Anana's main sanctuary was the Anna House of Heaven at Uruk, although she had temples or chapels in most cities. Okay, now there's there's multiple works, as I mentioned, the one uh, in Gilgamesh. Um, and, uh, you know, and then there's some other ones, Inanna and the uh, Halupu tree, which is an early creation myth, um, Inanna and the God of Wisdom, 
in which she brings knowledge and culture to the city of Uruk after receiving the gifts from the god of wisdom Enki while he is drunk. Um, Inanna and her relationship to Demuzi, or known or Tamaz, as he's noted in the known in the other story, he's a vegetation god. Uh, and the best-known poem, The Descent of Inanna, from about 1900 to 1600 BCE, in which the Queen of Heaven journeys to the underworld. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, it's, um, now, he quotes Dr. Jeremy Black here, and he says, Violent and lusting after power, she stands beside her favorite kings as they fight. In a Sumerian poem, Inanna campaigns against Mount Egi. Her journey <clears throat> to Aridu to obtain the... Now, I don't know this word... It looks like it's the wrong word, but in any case, she journeys to um, Eridu to her, and her descent to the underworld are both described as intended to extend her power. Um, so um, certainly Mark's interpretation of her in this article is that she is sort of manipulative and selfish and, of course, being seductive. Now, and these are all, um, let's just say, possible attributes, qualities, or aspects of the whole um, ritual of falling in love or of seduction. I mean, falling in love is a, is a wonderful, ecstatic thing, but there is also can be elements in the whole love, courtship, mating, trying to have sex, um, whatever aspect of it, that can be a manipulation. A lot of it is a manipulation. It's a, it's a way of trying to, that's what seduction has to do. It's something where you're not trying to be very obvious about something. Um, you know, or you are being obvious about your intentions without directly stating them. Okay, so it's, um, you know, but, but Gilgamesh tells her pretty directly um, how he, you know, he's like, yeah, that's, that this would not be a great idea for me to, to get involved with you. Um, so it's, you know, it, it, in, the epi, in that particular story, I said she is enraged at his rejection. And again, I'm reading from here. She sends the husband of her sister, Areshkigal, uh, Gugulana, the bull of heaven, to destroy Gil Gilgamesh's realm. Gil Gugulana is then killed by Enkidu, the best friend and comrade in arms of Gilgamesh, for which he is condemned by the gods to die. Enkidu's death is the catalyst for the famous quest Gilgamesh undertakes to discover the meaning of life. Okay, so she is, uh, is sort of a catalyst to this. Uh, she's shown in the company of a lion, um, and sometimes riding a lion. And in addition to being um, associated with Aphrodite or with Venus, or with some of these other love goddesses, she's also identified with Athena Nike, um, the, uh, Nike being the Greek word for victory. Uh, and this is the very famous uh, statue of Athena that was supposed to have been in the Parthenon and that some uh, reconstructions of, or you know, imagined reconstructions of this particular statue uh, have been designed and created. You can actually find a lot of them if you just do a Google image search for Athena Nike. Um, and that it basically shows a, 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 the goddess Athena. It's usually very tall, um, golden uh, and ivory statue, um, or possibly ivory. Certainly it's white in, in its color, uh, in which she is holding in her hand um, a little winged um, person, such as, it, in which is Nike, um, the goddess of victory. The god of victory. So, uh, Inanna has also been associated with the goddess Demeter, who we talked about a little bit in the previous episode, and with Persephone as a dying and reviving god figure, uh, no doubt from her carryover from her original incarnation as a rural goddess of agriculture. Um, now, there is a motif in, in these myths of the, the dying and resurrecting vegetation god. We talked about this in the mother goddess episode when we talk about the story of Kibele and Attis. Okay, where well you have the um, the god or the the handsome young man who's the lover of the god or goddess, I should say, who uh, is then killed in some fashion, 
uh, whether it be through hunting, whether it be um, in, in the case of Kibbley, you know, he ends up um, going mad and castrating himself and dying. Um, so there's this there's this motif of the god that is who is slain and then comes back um, as some kind of vegetation. Um, probably this this particular myth, um, the, at least the, the the theme of it, is probably also the motif for the resurrection of Christ. It's the idea. I mean, it's not he's not you know Jesus is not viewed as a vegetation deity, but there is this this idea of dying and resurrecting. Um, that particular concept, what you know, the, the ideas about death in, in um, the ancient world, I mean, death was very final. So this idea of resurrection um, is kind of a later one and is understood in terms of the cycles of um, the year, the death and the rebirth. Okay, um, So it's just worth noting that that, that theme or motif is probably um, sort of an underlying or unconscious theme that, um, that, that makes that particular um, story uh, appealing in some fashion, at least in some kind of symbolic uh, archetypal fashion. Okay. Um, now, uh, Jeremy Black also notes here, one aspect of Inanna's personality is that uh, of a goddess of love and sexual behavior, but especially connected with extramarital sex, and in a way which has not been fully researched with prostitution. Inanna is not a goddess of marriage, nor is she a mother goddess. The so-called sacred marriage in which she participates carries no overtones of moral implication for human marriages. Well, this is not really surprising. I mean, it, that's only an interpretation we would have in modern times, where we tend to see the term marriage and the term virgin uh, and, and other terms very differently than it would have been seen at that time. Uh, a virgin, in, in many cases, while it could refer to somebody who literally was chaste and didn't have sex, um, virginity could also simply refer to somebody who was unmarried. There have been occasionally, there have there have been references in, in places to, for example, the Greek goddess Aphrodite as a virgin. I mean, you know, we know she's not virginal by nature uh, in a sexual sense, but before she had a husband, then, you know, they're often referred to as um, a, a virginal goddess in the sense that they did not, you know, have a husband. And these female goddesses, Arishkagal also, even though she's described as having husbands, in quotes, um, a lot of times, you know, she just had men who she had around for her sexual pleasure. Um, Dumuzi is one of them. He spent, you know, after this descent of Inanna, he has to spend six months in the uh, underworld and then six months in the upper world, kind of like Persephone in the Greek myth, um, which again, we'll talk about in a separate place. Um, there's, uh, you know, this, this idea of the, you know, but he goes to the underworld and, and basically it's just, it's a love affair. Um, she may have a husband, but she may have other lovers. So this is a this is a a behavior that we tend to associate with male gods. Okay, I think of <clears throat> again if we're thinking the ancient world, I think I think of Zeus in particular. He tends to get a lot of flack for his behavior. Um, but we have to also remember that when we're talking about ancient gods, we're not their ancient religion. I've always said it is not ethical. Okay, there. I mean, not not that the ancient peoples didn't have certain values or ethics that they upheld in some way, but the religion, the gods were not meant to represent um, ethical qualities. You did not emulate the gods. You didn't sit there and say, uh, you know, you weren't sitting there judging them on whether their behavior was moral and acceptable in society or not. That, that was a much later development. That's something I connect more with Greek philosophy and with the sort of rationalization of uh, religious impulse. Basically, mythology really is just talking about sort of how things are. It's talking about the, the kinds of impulses and emotions and feelings that we have as human beings. Um, 
or that just seem to exist, you know, in human behavior. And, it, you know, it, whenever we expect people by to behave in a sort of default rational behavior or in a way that builds community, which which that's part of it. The idea is that you have to give up maybe some of these impulses or constrain them in order to live in a society. We're not necessarily talking about that with the gods. And mythology is not meant to teach you. It, it's not, I don't believe it's didactic in nature at all. I mean, not that you can't have um, certain stories that may demonstrate certain moral points, but I don't think that's the point of mythology. And I don't certainly don't think that's the point of the ancient mythologies. They are pointing to the way in which desire enacts itself. It's, it's the way in which, um, and it's the way it's connected with rage and with war and revenge. I mean, just think, just think about the most dramatic love affairs you've either either had yourself or that you've witnessed in other people. Um, you know, love causes, you know, love, it's not, there's not really necessarily a far, um, distance between love and war. Um, and I honestly think, war, I think I tend to think of war as being a more feminine impulse than a masculine one, but that's something I will get to also in future episodes. But here's one example of a uh, goddess who is associated with both love and war. I'll talk about another one before the end of this episode from that same area, at least, at least mention. But, um, you know, but the, again, and, and I've also, I have a, a note to myself here that I'm thinking of um, the Trojan War, very famous war from probably, you know, at least um, 700 to, to over a thousand years after, you know, actually more than a thousand years uh, after a lot of these particular epics were written. Um, I, I think about the fact that the Trojan War is supposedly caused by a woman, Helen, okay, who, that she is supposedly the impetus for going to war. And uh, whenever I teach the Iliad, and I think of the first book, where Agamemnon and Achilles fight over Briseis. Okay, I mean, you know, the, you know, this idea of the female as being the impetus of war. Now, you can, yeah, you can certainly argue that that's not the real reason for the war. You know, that people wouldn't go to war over something like that. But there, there's a kind of a symbolism there about the female as sort of, uh, or, or the, that impulse towards desire as, as fomenting war. So something worth thinking about. Um, now, let me talk about Arishkagal. Okay, now she's an Anna's sister. Now, mind you, she's an older sister, uh, which to me suggests that she's a more primal energy. Um, she has to do with the underworld, so she's connected with the Chthonic. She's connected with the Earth, particularly. However, ni neither of these deities are mother goddesses in any sense. Okay, even if they're capable of producing children, they are not mother goddesses. That's not their role. Um, they're not there to, uh, to to serve that particular aspect. Okay. Uh, Inanna is also known as Alatu, and her name, um, there's a, uh, um, um, so her name actually supposedly comes from the Sumerian for Lady of the Great Earth, okay, so she is, um, so yeah, she's definitely uh, chthonically connected. Uh, so again, if we look at the difference between the celestial and the earthly, Arishkagal is the much, Arishkagal is the most, much older, um, underworld counterpart of, uh, of Inanna or Ishtar. Um, now what I would like to do is I would, I would like to, um, tell the, talk about the, um, the story of, uh, Arishkagal and Inanna. I actually have the, um, the frag, the translated fragments from, um, uh, Carolina Lopez Ruiz in her Oxford, uh, University Press anthology called God's Heroes and Monsters. This one's a little um, complicated to read through, though, so I think I would rather um, read through at least part of a summary version of that, um, because there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of 
you know, repetition of, of things in here because of the way that the uh, cuneiform text is, is written. Um, she is, and, 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 it's, and, it, and it can make it a rather choppy read. So actually, you know, reading something, something of a, a summary might be, might be easier. Okay, so this is actually from uh, J.F. Berline's Parallel Myths. So I'm going to just uh, take an excerpt from him. Ishtar, the goddess of love, was restless. She had never visited the land of the dead where her, her evil, he calls her evil, which she's not, sister Arishkagal, ruled. Uh, she asked the permission of the other gods to go there, and they consented only after the greatest reluctance. She started on the road to the underworld. She arrived at the first gate of the underworld and said, O gatekeeper, open thy gate, open thy gate, that I may enter. If thou openest not the gate that I cannot, so that I cannot enter, I will smash the gate down. I will raise up the dead, eating the living, so that the dead outnumber the living. The gatekeeper went to his queen, Arishkagal, to inform her that Ishtar was at the gate. Arishkagal was not pleased to learn that her beautiful sister had arrived, and she turned pale, saying, What drove her heart to me? What impelled her spirit here? Should I eat clay for bread? Shall I drink muddy water in place of beer? Shall I mourn for the men who left their wives behind? Should I mourn for the girls who leave their lovers' laps? Should I mourn for the little ones who die before their time? And um, and actually, what's interesting is Lopez Ruiz actually does not translate this as should I. She translates it as, um, for the infant child, I have to weep. I have to weep for girls wrenched from their lovers' laps. So he's not saying should I. She's saying I have to. So interesting, two interesting uh, interpretations there. So, um, so Arishka Gal is not pleased about her sister's visit, um, but she basically tells um, her gatekeeper that um, that you know Anana or Ishtar may be admitted, but that she has to follow the laws of the underworld, which is rather interesting. Um, since uh, Arishka Gal is queen of the underworld and her rule is absolute. One would assume these are her laws, but one does wonder if these are the, these represent something um, of the perhaps of the um, having to do with fate or having to do with a, a broader influence that's even beyond her. In the way, same way that um, Zeus cannot, uh, in, in or any of the Olympian gods in the Greek, can avert the rulings of fate. So, um, but but this may just simply be pointing to the the fact that the, the death is what it is. Okay. Um, so, at the first gate, the compliance with this law, Ishtar was obliged to remove her crown. At the second gate, she had to take off her earrings. At the third, her necklace. At the fourth, her breast ornaments. At the fifth, her belt. At the sixth, her hand and leg bracelets. And at the seventh, she removed her waistcloth, leaving her naked. Now, you have to stop and think about that for a minute. Because one thing that occurs to me is the, the order in which she is taking off these implements and where they might be located. I mean, have to, they seem to line up with the, with the seven chakras. So it's almost like a descent of the kundalini energy. It goes from the top of the head back down to the root. So first she removes the crown. So that would have to do with the top chakra, which is called the crown chakra. Um, then she has to take off her earrings, which are the level of her ears, which is very close to where the, the, um, you know, or the third, uh, third eye is. Um, her necklace is around her neck. That's around the level of the Vishuddhi chakra. Then she has to take off her um, her breast ornaments, which are at the level of the um, of the heart chakra, and so on and so forth, um, down to where she is finally naked and she has none of these adornments. So it's almost like a, a lowering of that energy. Now, yeah, that's an interpretation, and people will say, well, no, that's not what the text intended. Well, but nonetheless, this idea of death as being sort of a reversal or a, a return of the life force to the root 
you know, you you could you could make the argument there. I would think, at least in a um, sort of uh, psychoanalytic or uh, a reading of it of some kind, or or some other kind of uh, symbolic reading of it. Um, as soon as Ishtar had entered the last gate, Arishkagal burst at her. What do you want here? Do you want to know what it is like to be for the dead? Uh, Arishkagal ordered her assistants to unleash 60 miseries on Ishtar, afflicting each part of the beautiful goddess's body with one of the pains used to punish the dead. Okay. Um, so now here's where the story starts to differ in different versions. Because in some... So at this point... Um, the, the upper world, the, the heavens, they, they, want, they need to rescue Ishtar. In some versions, they send two androgynous beings called uh, Gali. And interesting that they're androgynous or that they're portrayed as eunuchs. Gali, as I remind you, are also um, priests of the goddess Kibali, okay, who were eunuchs. Um, and in fact, um, she the idea, in, in the version that Berline tells, a beautiful man is sent down to, and the, and the purpose there is to distract Arishkagal with this attractive man so that uh, Ishtar or Inanna can escape. Um, however, in these other versions, either this, this beautiful man, which is, who's referred to, um, interestingly, what's, what's the term that uh, Lopez Ruiz uses? She uses, um, she refers to him as good looks. Um, which is how she translates whatever the word is for this um, this obviously very handsome, um, this, the most beautiful man is, is the way that Be uh, Beerline uh, translates that, who comes down. And that supposedly she's sort of excited by the idea of having sex with this beautiful man coming to the underworld, but then when he arrives, he turns out to be a eunuch. Um, and then she's, she's angry and disappointed because she feels she's been tricked. Uh, and in the meantime, Inanna has, interestingly, she reclaims all of her garments, uh, right, and then her her jewelry right up through her crown as she leaves. Um, so it's so there there's a, there's that rising up again as one leaves the underworld. There's kind of a, a symbolism there. Um, but it's but so whether or not um, it's it's Tugali who are sent, whether or not it's a beautiful eunuch who is sent, whatever it is, you have this sort of idea of an androgynous or non-sexed or bisexed being who's sent down to Arishkagal. Um, and in many versions, she complains. Um, now, again, in one, um, Mark refers to her as complaining about the pains of labor. In others, she talks about having been violated in other versions of the story. Uh, again, it, it, ancient myth has many, many variations. There's not, in spite of the fact that anthologies exist of this myth, doesn't mean there's one version of it. Typically, there's different versions from different areas. Um, and that supposedly the the Gali who are sent down uh, are sympathetic to her and listen to her, and therefore she, as a reward, she lets them take a gift, and they say, well, we'd like to, the corpse that you have hanging up, because in that version, of course, Inanna is a corpse that she's hung from a, a hook uh, in the underworld. Okay, so, um, but but ultimately Inanna's rescued, but uh, her lover, um, Dumuzi, has to go to the underworld uh, in her place. Now, in some versions, it's more that um, this is her, you know, again, she's portrayed as being this this selfish woman who says she's going to, um, you know, send her, you know, send her lover down in her place. Um, however, again, in other variations of this, she rises again to the world to find that her lover has been, doesn't even miss her and isn't in mourning at her death and is taken up with other women. So, of course, she's furious and then says, well, you know, I'll show you. You can go live in the underworld now. You know, because there's always this idea of an exchange. Very interestingly, the idea is that if you go to the underworld, you cannot go out again. Or, you know, it's like it's like if you're, it's your time to die, you can't um, 
avoid that. And if you have died, the only way to escape that is to have someone take your place. Um, we, we also see this. Um, there's also a Greek myth about this, which we'll talk about um, again in a different episode. But there's um, <clears throat> so there's this idea that um, the only way to avert death is to is to offer an exchange. Like, okay, if you if you get to live, um, although it's interesting that Inanna is an immortal goddess, or um, because we we do know that the Babylonian and Sumerian gods that they it's it's stated quite clearly uh, in the Gilgamesh that you know uh, death they gave to mortals, immor- you know immortality they kept for themselves. Okay, so. The fact that they are immortal, but then um, Inanna goes to experience death and then rises again um, is rather rather interesting. We don't really see the the reason for Inanna doing this other than, you know, I mean, this the, this narrative makes her almost sound like she's bored and says, eh, let, me, let me go check out the underworld. Some people think she's trying to extend her power. Uh, that would actually square with the myth of, Afri- of um, Hades and Persephone. Because supposedly Hades falls in love with Persephone and steals her away because Aphrodite has um, sent uh, Eros to to strike Hades with an arrow so that she can extend her power to the realm of the underworld. Okay, so as a goddess of love, you know, to to bring that or to inflict that on um, the goddess, uh, you know, um, you know, to a realm where you know love is generally not um, not a, not considered to be an attribute, shall we say? Um, Okay, so let me, um, see what my other, other notes are on this. Um, I did mention earlier that there's, um, there's another, um, goddess from Thrake who has to do with, uh, love and war, and that is Katus, or sometimes known as Kato, or, um, Katito, or Katitus. Um, so was, she was worshipped by Thrakean tribes, uh, such as the Edonians in the festival of the um, Katitia. And there was also a cult of hers in classical Athens. Okay, um, According to Greek sources, her priests were called baptes or washers because their pre-worship purification rites involved bathing. Her worship included midnight orgies, and her name is believed to have meant war or slaughter, akin to the Old Norse uh, hur, which also means um, war and slaughter. So interestingly, you have this um, this goddess who is uh, very similar in nature to um, Arishkagal and to Inanna, and, uh, but is in fact a, a goddess of, um, you know, is also considered to be a goddess of war and sex at the same time. So this again is, is not an, un, an uncommon motif. I think I wanted to, uh, to mention that. Um, now, Inanna, um, we don't necessarily, again, there, there's, in terms of imagery, there's certainly imagery of Inanna. Um, Arishkagal, we don't really see anything. There, again, there's that Bernie relief, which is controversial. Which one, which goddess is it? We don't really know. Um, but there seems to be a, a lack of imagery of, of Arishkagal. Um, now, one book I've read recently is uh, Underworld by, um, that's compiled by David Beth at uh, Theon Publishing. And he kind of, he, when he talks about Arishkagal, he says, you know, it's kind of curious that there's not really, you know, any imagery of her. Like, how would, how would this, how would Arishkagal be depicted? Um, but other, other writers have said, well, you know, if, if there's a belief that creating an image of the deity uh, brings that deity kind of into your presence in the same way that uh, in Hindu temples, for example, when you um, create, you know, have, have a murti, when you establish life in a murti, there's a there's a whole ritual for that when a temple is established. 
that then you are bringing the presence of that deity into your space, into your temple space, and that they may not have wanted to do that with a goddess of the underworld. In a similar way that um, deities like Hades, for example, you don't really see, I mean, there are, there's a couple statues of Hades out there, but you don't generally see gods of the dead portrayed in temples in this way. I mean, I, I, that's not, I don't think that's um, quite, so, quite so strange. Um, but uh, there goes my phone. Um, now, there's a, uh, there's a couple of things, uh, there's a couple of other mentions. I wanted to mention also um, Arishkagal later on. She tends to appear in the Roman Empire, late Roman Empire, or I should actually say early Roman Empire period. This is sort of the late Republic period um, when you have this sort of uh, Roman-Egyptian connection. Um, and then this was the time of the, um, the Greek magical papyri, okay, or also known as the PGM for the um, initials of the Latin name for that work. Um, and, uh, that's an interesting, uh, work of magic that also refers to, um, that tends to take not only Egyptian deities, but Babylonian deities and Greek gods and other deity, you know, and other, um, you know, other sort of deities from the Mesopotamian or Near Eastern, um, you know, Greco-Roman regions, uh, and North Africa and tends to sort of combine them. And, and combine their uh, their purposes. So you, there is a reference in the um, in the PGM. In fact, I think it's. I'm just taking a look at it now. Um, PGM seventy um, dash dot four dash twenty five. There's a charm of Hecate Arishkagal against fear of punishment. And interestingly, uh, Arishkagal is referred to here. And I've got to stop saying interestingly. I notice I say that a lot. Um, Arishkagal, virgin, bitch, serpent, reef, key. Herald's wand, golden sandal of the Lady of Tartarus, and supposedly that saying this charm will allow you to avert uh, someone who wishes to um, to punish you. There's also the sense one that says, "I'm Arishkagal, the one holding her thumbs." Okay, so there's this um, this particular uh, motion, but that's also associated with Hecate, that sort of locking of thumbs. And uh, and this is this is supposed to avert punishment. Um, <clears throat> uh, Hans Dater. Uh, Beats Betts, who uh, translated the papyri, has also said that um, there were uh, curse tablets from the fourth century. Curse tablets um, were were a type of spell uh, that one would use against their enemies. Uh, you, you know, you find these; they're usually um, carved on lead, and they would be, you know, they would be uh, some kind of a charm or a curse, impelling somebody, either binding somebody to something or keeping them away or causing them to have uh, some kind of a, a negative result. Sometimes they're, they actually have the um, essence of being a love charm or, you know, making somebody sick with love and so forth. There's, there's a, um, the, the curse tablets are rather interesting and there's, there's a whole, um, a whole lot of studies that, that you can find on those. I don't want to go off on those tangent, but Arishkagal is also mentioned here. And in the, um, in the Greek and in the, in early Roman sources, she tends to be, um, sort of merged with or conflated with the goddess Hecate. And Hecate also, very interestingly, um, there I do again, interestingly, Hecate also, um, has to do with, she has, Hesiod describes Hecate as, as a very, um, She's a very bright goddess. She's she um, she's one that Zeus reveres. She's full of wisdom. Um, uh, the Theogony portrays her as as one of the greatest titans, and one that even after the war with the Titans, that Zeus did not take anything away from her that belonged to her. 
And yet she comes to have this association with the underworld. And she also sort of has her opposite. Uh, I tend to view Hecate's opposite as the goddess Artemis. But Hecate's role and function changed over time. Uh, there will be a separate episode on Hecate, of course. I mean, how could I not in a, in a series like this? But Hecate, um, but Hecate is, is often conflated with Arishkagal in this particular um, uh, version. And it's interesting because um, Hecate, Hecate Arishkagal is kind of portrayed in both ways. She's brilliantly beautiful and she's terrifying. She's, um, you know, she's got these, these um, wonderful sort of loving attributes, but she's also, you know, she's also very scary. She's, um, she's you know, she can be a rewarder and she can be a punisher. She's kind of both. And again, this is something, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of um, theory about um, Hecate's sort of, um, I don't want to call it a dual nature, because the whole point is that her nature isn't dual. She's, she's just a, that collection of what we think of as opposites uh, are all possible within her. But there certainly is a later uh, tradition that, that tries to take her more negative qualities and, and, and uh, you know, make them into a separate deity. But I don't want to go too far afield with that. Um, I, I did want to make the point, sort of, about these uh, about these goddesses um, to refer to. You know, again, here we have Berline referring to Arishkagal as evil. I don't think that that's. Um, you know, I, I think that's a mistake to refer to the underworld deity as an evil goddess. Um, Inanna certainly has her own, or Ishtar certainly has her own attributes that people could see as um, being ethically questionable, shall we say. Um, and again, it's in line with the fact that there, what, what really needs to be taken away here is this sort of fine line between um, love and revenge and death and, and, and the way that sex and war can sort of be um, uh, maybe perhaps viewed from coming from a similar kind of a, a place or an impulse. And this is just something that simply is. It's not something to be judged as either good or evil. Its results can have consequences that we interpret as good or evil, but it's not. Um, but to judge the goddess or the god in that particular fashion, I think, is a mistake. So this is something that Rishkagal. Um, <coughs> you can't say that one is a queen of heaven and one is a queen of the underworld, and therefore one's good and the other's evil. It doesn't work like that. And I think they're a perfect illustration of of this sort of multifaceted um, nature of desire. And that sort of, and the way that passion works, and and also of, um, <clears throat> you know, we, we, we kind of see this, um, you know, and you see this relationship between this older sister goddess and 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 the goddess Inanna herself. Uh, they're actually quite similar in a lot of ways, though they rule over different domains. Um, they have a lot of, of, of very similar attributes. Uh, again, one being chthonic and one being um, celestial. Uh, that those kind of take on slightly different inflections. Again, neither is really good or evil. They're just they just simply represent what they are. And I think there needs to be more of a you know sort of a stepping back and, and recognizing these impulses for what they are, rather than trying to label them as something uh, demonic or something um, you know that that is necessarily a negative in nature. That said, like any of these forces, if you're somebody who who chooses to work with this kind of energy, you always have to be careful. Um, they're not, uh, you know, it's not, um, you know, you're not, you're not dealing with something that's, that's all, um, sweetness and light. And oftentimes there's a, there's sort of a tricksterish element when you have some, when you have a manipulative kind of deity, you know, you can have, um, <clears throat> you, you can get, you can get played just as well as anybody else. So, um, 
So it, it, it's kind of important to to keep the sort of, uh, I'm going to call it the irrational nature. And again, I don't mean irrational in a negative sense. It's just simply you're dealing with something a lot more chaotic. And uh, that's you need to really bear that in mind. When not only whether you're thinking about these deities in terms of as archetypes or as uh, sort of metaphors for for human behavior, or whether you're thinking about them as actual energies that uh, that one interacts with. Okay, so that is where I need to leave off for now. I'm gonna I, I could potentially ramble on for too long. Um, but again, I would like to uh, remind you, if you're not at Cathonia.net, to please visit because um, not only do I have the podcast and you'll have all of the current episodes there. But also, um, you know, you can take a look at some of my other projects, which might be of interest to you. Uh, if you are interested in supporting any of my projects, please visit uh, patreon.com slash Cathonia and uh, consider becoming a patron. Uh, if you are a patron of mine, I want to say thank you so much. Um, I, I appreciate your um, efforts to help keep me doing the things that uh, I enjoy doing. Uh, and with that, um, I hope to... Uh, hear from some of you uh, on what you think about these episodes, and hopefully you will tune in next time. 